1: In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn, and the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. The more The Murder Diaries grows, the more housekeeping items that pop up. Thanks to you lovely people listening every week. Some of you may have come across our Patreon page and it looking a little maybe half done. And that's true. We're working really hard on it. So that will be coming August 1st. So if you've seen it and then like, what is this? They have a Patreon. It's a little bit still yet to come. If you want to support the podcast, but you're not really looking for a subscription style support, you can head over to com slash pod and place a one-time support there. Thank you, everybody who has supported already there. We love you all. Now, today's story is about Sage Smith. Sage was a teenager on the path of self-discovery when she went missing in November 2012. She left her apartment in Charlottesville, Virginia, and headed down to Main Street. She even stopped to talk to her stepsister along the way. By all accounts, Sage was said to have been meeting up with a man at the Amtrak station. After that night, Sage was never seen again. This is her story. Sage's case isn't without complications. When we were preparing to tell her case, one of the major considerations we had to take into account was whether or not to use Eric's real name. Eric is the man. That Sage is said to have been meeting up with the night she disappeared, and he's still considered a person of interest in this case. He's also still missing. We made the decision to use his name because if we find Eric, maybe we can find Sage too. That being said, some of the other names have been changed. Sage was born December 13th, 1992, to parents Latasha and Dean. Soon after she was born, her parents split up and both would marry new partners. With that, Sage's family now grew, adding step-parents and step-siblings. Despite having quite the family unit between her parents' respective homes, Sage lived with her paternal grandmother, known in their Charlottesville, Virginia community as Miss Cookie. Miss Cookie and Sage were extremely close and very bonded. Miss Cookie says of their relationship, quote, Sage was very special to me. We had a very special bond, end quote. Miss Cookie was also the very first family member that Sage came out as gay to. Miss Cookie talks about the day that Sage told her, quote, Grandma, I'm gay. To which Miss Cookie responded, quote, You're not telling me nothing I didn't already know, end quote. Eventually, sometime after the age of 12, Sage moved back in with her mom, but was later placed in foster care. This is also around the time that Sage began coming to her own in her gender identity. She was living a more gender-fluid life. Some friends and family used to different pronouns, and some resources on this case do as well. Her mom said, quote, I don't feel like she ever had a preference of what she was, end quote. Sage's sister echoes saying, quote, Sage wasn't a person with labels. She was very fluid. Sometimes she would, you know, have her wigs on, and, you know, dresses and skirts, and then sometimes she was wearing a whole suit, end quote. Her best friend and roommate, who we will call Jennifer, says, quote, Sage was more of a, I'm just gonna be who I feel like I am. Basically, however Sage felt, that's how Sage would dress. For this episode, we'll be using she, her as Sage's pronouns, as you can already tell, because on November 9th, 2012, Sage wrote in a Facebook post, quote, I'm a girl now, hashtag respected, end quote. She had also changed her gender to female on her Facebook profile. So again, for those reasons, we'll be using the name Sage as well as she, her pronouns. Sage was so much more than her gender identity, though. Miss Cookie told NBC, quote, she was the type of person who everyone was friends with, end quote. She goes on to explain that Sage was fashionable and liked to dress to impress. Sage's sister says she was, quote, really energetic, very out there, colorful person, end quote. And according to the episode of Disappeared that covered Sage's case, Sage had, quote, a charisma that was infectious. Her mom says Sage, quote, had some type of magnet. She could just pull people into her, end quote. When Miss Cookie talks about what Sage was like again, she mentions that Sage thrived on attention and loved to dance. Sage was also really into cosmetology, and according to Splinter News and Stories of the Unsolved, after moving out on her own in March of 2012 with roommates Audrey and Jennifer, Sage began to pursue that cosmetology dream. It's not clear to what extent, but Sage had a bit of a braiding business going on too. She was braiding hair out of their apartment. She was also working at a local salon sweeping hair and other tasks, I'm sure, while learning the trade and taking cosmetology classes locally. It's also really inspiring to note that despite the odds that were against her, Sage became the first in her family to graduate high school and earn a diploma in 2011. That's where Sage was in her life on the night of November 20th, 2012, when she went missing. She was a few weeks shy of 20, living with her best friends, and coming to her own in life as a trans woman. U.S. Thanksgiving was also coming up. It was around the corner. It was going to be on the 22nd, and Sage was planning on celebrating at her mom's house. Before we get any further into November 20th, 2012, I want to talk about the day before. I'm going to be really relying heavily on what stories of The Unsolved reported about that day. On the night of November 19th, 2012, the girls held a party at the apartment. This was in celebration of Jennifer's 19th birthday. At some point, a girl arrived and stated that she wanted to fight one of Sage's friends over a man. An altercation which ended up outside. Sage got involved and began fighting an acquaintance who will leave nameless, which led to the police being called. At around 11.20 p.m., they arrived on the scene And while Nameless filed a report against Sage claiming she damaged his car, no one was arrested and the officers soon left. Again, that story is heavily relying on what Stories of the Unsolved reported. And it could be completely unrelated to anything that has anything to do with Sage being missing. But we wanted to include it because, again, Sage is still missing and it's important to get everything out there. The next night, on the 20th, Sage was getting ready for a date before the holiday festivities would kick into gear. Jennifer wasn't home, but Audrey was. Sage woke Audrey up from a nap on the couch around 5:40 p.m. and let her know that she was heading out and would be back later. The next morning, Audrey quickly notices that Sage never came home, and when she tries to call Sage, it goes straight to voicemail. When I tell you that this was not normal for Sage, this was not normal. Family and friends alike state that Sage even carried around a charger with her everywhere she went so that her phone never died. And that phone was basically glued to her. On top of that, her mom, Latasha, says, quote, she always kept in touch with her family, end quote. With this in mind, Audra gets worried pretty quickly and starts to call around to see if anyone had seen her recently. One of the people that Audrey called was Sage's stepsister, Kira. She actually said that, yes, she saw Sage on Main Street the night before around 6.30. Kira explains to disappeared that she saw Sage as she was headed to a bus stop. She goes on further to say that when she saw her, Sage was on her phone with someone. And as they stood there, Kira heard the person on the other end of the phone ask Sage where she was. Sage responded, explaining she'll be there, wherever they were presumably meeting up, in five minutes, This becomes the last confirmed sighting of Sage alive. After getting info from Kira, Audrey calls Miss Cookie. Miss Cookie advises her to call the police. That's exactly what Audrey did. The next day, November 22nd, Thanksgiving Day, the missing persons investigation was officially underway. One of the first questions investigators had was if this was a hate crime based on Sage's gender identity. Whether or not it was, they knew they needed to track her movements on Main Street. And that seems entirely feasible. Regardless if it was a hate crime or not, investigators knew they needed to track her movements on Main Street that night, and they needed to figure out who Sage was talking to on the phone that night because they felt like that was the person Sage was trying to meet up with. To find that out, they would have to subpoena Sage's phone records, even though that would take a few days to get the process completed. Sage's aunt comes through, though, in the best way. She guessed Sage's passwords and was able to get into her phone records online before having to wait for the subpoenaed records. From that, they were able to determine that the person Sage spoke to last used a phone number that had an area code for a different state. It was not a Virginia number, and none of them recognized it. Not knowing who it was, they decided to give the number a call, but they got nothing. Dean says, quote, called that number about 100 a thousand times, nothing, nothing. Every time they called the number, it would alert with one of those automated messages that said the number couldn't receive calls at this time. On the officer's end, they decided to do a search of the area on Main Street that Sage was last seen by her stepsister. If it's not already clear from its name, Main Street, Lieutenant Mooney describes this area as heavily trafficked. The lieutenant also explains that it's one of the busiest areas in the community and there are people everywhere out and about. It's also a well-connected area because there's a bus station and an Amtrak train station. Of course, officers checked for surveillance footage in the area, but there were only a couple businesses, according to Lieutenant Mooney, that had cameras in a 10-lock radius. Needless to say, they couldn't locate any footage of use. Meanwhile, Sage's family was still hard at work trying to get any information they could about this out-of-state number. Her father, Dean, ends up putting the number on Facebook in an effort to see if anyone recognized it. Within hours, a friend of Sage's private messaged him and told him the number belonged to a guy named Eric McFadden. Not only that, but that Sage was dating Eric. The catch? Eric had a girlfriend that didn't know about his relationship with Sage. And another helpful move, that same friend that was DMing Dean sent a photo of Eric to him. Dean then posted that photo on Facebook asking if anybody knew about him or his whereabouts. He did all this without telling investigators because he wanted to be able to continue his search uninterrupted. However, police do end up learning about Eric on the 24th, but it's not in relation to Sage's case. A student from the University of Virginia reports Eric missing. That student was none other than Eric's girlfriend, who we'll call Star. Star was calling from out of town. She was away for the holiday weekend. She knew nothing at the time about Dean's Facebook post, and she was looking for Eric. She was simply calling for a welfare check on him since she hadn't been able to get a hold of him all day, and his phone was strangely going to voicemail. Police had to star in Eric's home, but no one was there. Police finally learned that Eric and Sage's disappearance may be related because the same friend that spoke to Dean about Eric paid investigators a visit to tell them everything they knew. The police quickly moved forward with going public using press releases and posters that depicted Eric and Sage, labeling Eric as a person of interest and requesting any information that may locate him and or Sage. We know that Eric hadn't spoken with Star, but he also hadn't shown up for work. This was fishy to investigators. As Detective Wright-Settles puts it, quote, "...the fact that he ran..." makes it seem that he's likely a suspect because why would you run unless you did this, end quote. Detectives got permission to search Star and Eric's home. They took Eric's computer and searched for anything that might place Sage in the apartment. Most noteworthy, they find a receipt dated November 22nd from a CVS in Charlottesville. This receipt is dated two days after Sage went missing, which means he didn't skip town the same day that Sage went missing but it does mean that he went missing the same day Sage's dad posted the picture on Facebook. Detective Wrights poses the following question. Did Eric run because he did something to Sage or did he run because he was outed as having a relationship with a trans woman on Facebook when Dean made his post? Investigators got footage from the CVS and it matches the receipt. You can see Eric walking into CVS around 6.08 p.m. on the 22nd. Despite the cloud of doubt that was now cast over any guilt that Eric may have, given that he didn't run immediately after Sage's disappearance, investigators still dove in deeper on Eric. To find out more about Eric and maybe more about Eric and Sage's relationship, they interview none less than the best friend and roommates, Jennifer and Audrey. Audrey says she only met Eric once in a fleeting moment with Sage. Jennifer says, quote, Sage never talked about Eric at all to me majority of the people I thought Sage knew, I thought I knew," in quote. When the subpoena phone records finally arrive, it assisted further in looking into Eric and Sage. The records confirm what was believed. Eric was the last person to speak to Sage. The records showed that he spoke with her at 6:36 pm on the 20th. The subpoena records also included Sage's text messages, so it gave detectives an opportunity to read her messages with Eric those messages showed a story that Eric and Sage were supposed to meet up on the night of the 20th. Sage was maybe running a bit behind and then maybe never showed, ending with Eric saying, quote, bye, you stood me up, end quote. Detective Wright settled, told Disappeared, quote, it was clear based on the text messages that they did not meet up, end quote. Eric was under suspicion though because he too was missing and investigators couldn't speak to him to clear his name, Then, on November 27th, a call came in to the sergeant. The person on the other end claimed to be Eric. They tell the sergeant that they had nothing to do with Sage's disappearance. The caller goes on to say that he's in New York City and he left Charlottesville because he wanted to be in New York and him leaving had nothing to do with Sage's disappearance. They go on further to confirm that he and Sage did have plans to meet up in front of the Amtrak station on the night of the 20th, just like the phone records reported, They echo the phone records again, saying Sage never showed up. What was also confirmed by this caller, who we have no other choice but to believe it was Eric, was that Eric did have a relationship with Sage that was intimate. With all of this information having been given from this caller, they ask them, please come home to Charlottesville. We would like to talk to you. And they agree. And they go so far as to tell investigators when their bus would arrive. When talking about this phone call, Lieutenant Mooney says that the explanation of why Eric was in New York was, quote, suspicious. What's even more suspicious, though, is that Eric never arrived. He never got on that bus he told them he was getting on back to Virginia. Starr tells investigators three days later about an email she receives from Eric. This email tells Eric's side of the story as to what happened on November 20th. What's concerning about it, though, is that it's the exact opposite of what investigators have gathered. The email states that Eric did meet up with Sage that night, and when they were walking, they came across some other people, and Lieutenant Mooney says of what happens after they encounter these other people, quote, he just said Sage had many enemies and he got out of there. He kept walking, basically. That suggested to me he was in fear of whoever he saw, end quote. The email goes on to claim that Sage had been blackmailing him because his girlfriend and the community didn't know that he was gay. I want to make it crystal clear and remind you that the claims in this email about Sage blackmailing him and the happenings on the night Sage went missing have not been substantiated. Even Lieutenant Mooney says, quote, it's hard to discern what if any of this is the truth at all. What we do know is that he's left town and Sage Smith is nowhere to be found, end quote. With his stories, inconsistencies, and failure to return home, the investigators advanced their efforts. They got a warrant to search deeper into his computer as well as his personal email, bank, and social media accounts. They don't find much of anything, though. So they turn to Sage's social media accounts. That's when they find that she had contact with a lot of men who were keeping their interest in trans women quiet. They believe that this could have definitely put her more in harm's way. An example of how this can and may have put Sage a little more in harm's way is that a few months before she disappeared one of the guys Sage had been seeing on the down low had a girlfriend and she found emails between this guy and Sage. The guy got upset and blamed Sage for the girlfriend finding out. This guy ends up attacking Sage randomly as she walked home. Charges were later filed and Jennifer mentions that she thought of this guy first once Sage went missing. However, This guy was incarcerated at the time of Sage's disappearance, so his alibi was set and easy to confirm. Again, this just shows, though, the possibility that something like this could have happened again. I get it. When someone is missing, you can't leave any stone unturned. So it makes sense why they wouldn't rule out that possibility. Possibility is the perfect word. There were also a lot of other things going on, too. Like on December 3rd, they got an alert showing that Sage's credit card had been used at a convenience store just the day before. Investigators find out through surveillance footage that it was Sage's roommate Audrey that used her card on December second. Miss Cookie says, quote, it was a little shady to me, end quote. When they ask Audrey about it, her answer is basically that they shared things, much like they shared the apartment. Stories of the Unsolved says that Sage got the apartment through the foster system. It's unclear how that worked or what that looked like, but my best guess is it may have been through some kind of program for those aging out of the foster system. All that to say that while given the opportunity to live in this apartment, Sage invited Jennifer and Audrey to live with her. Again, we're not sure what the circumstances were in terms of rent or if it was entirely subsidized, but either way, Sage included Jennifer and Audrey and shared this opportunity with her friends. That makes it clear that they do share big things like this. The flip side of the coin, though, is that Audrey's alibi of being asleep at home wasn't one that was able to fully be confirmed. Still, though, they don't have any evidence Audrey had anything to do with it. I want to be really sure to express that. Back to more of our timeline, though. Just 10 days after that credit card alert, a vigil was held at Lee Park on Sage's 20th birthday, December 13th, 2012. A crowd gathered at night and saying happy birthday to Sage. They then released balloons in her honor that together made the colors of the rainbow. That's where our 2012 timeline leaves off. In February of 2013, police got a report from a woman that will call Mona, She says that she's known Sage for several years and she actually spoke with her at 7 p.m. on the night of November 20th when Sage went missing. Mona goes on to say that she saw Sage by herself at the Wild Wings Cafe on Main Street. And when she spoke with her, Sage told her that she was waiting for somebody but never told her who. After a short while, Mona leaves Wild Wings Cafe and Sage stayed put in the restaurant. Although this sighting hasn't been confirmed, this could totally check out because the Wild Wings Cafe is right by the Amtrak station. According to Lieutenant Mooney, the Wild Wings Cafe and Amtrak station share a building. If this signing is indeed true, we now know more about Sage's timeline. So let's take a look at it. And this is in big part thanks to Uncovered.com who did a really great job breaking it down. At 5.40 p.m., Sage wakes Audrey up saying that she's leaving. At 6.12 p.m., Eric texts Sage, saying, quote, I'm standing here, where are you? At 6.18, Sage is on the phone with an unnamed friend. At 6.27, Eric texts, quote, you stood me up, bye, end quote. Sometime around here is when she runs into Kira as well. It's just a little more unclear when, but it was near 6.30, according to Kira. At 6.37, Sage texts Eric, quote, I was on a call with a friend, see you soon, end quote. Then, at 7 p.m., we have the unconfirmed sighting from Mona at the Wild Wings Cafe. Detective Wright-Settle says that this 7 p.m. account could mean that Sage met up with Eric and then subsequently left him after that alive going into the restaurant. That information could potentially clear Eric, but after speaking with management, they weren't able to confirm that Sage was there by any eyewitnesses, and there wasn't any security footage either. The next movement of note in this case is November of 2015. Charlottesville police released then that they no longer considered Eric a suspect. They claimed that they had been able to use this digital footprint to rule him out. Lieutenant Mooney says of that release, quote, if you look at the phone records, if you look at his computer usage, he's occupied. It doesn't seem to be the behavior of someone who's committing an atrocious act, end quote. Detective Wright Settles echoes this, informing us that Eric was on his computer off and on from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. that night, and he didn't have any suspicious searches or anything like that. Eric was also unable to drive, and there were a few other factors that law enforcement just felt proved he didn't really have the means to commit a violent crime unseen like that. Quote, the likelihood of him committing an abduction or murder, it would have been hard to say the least, end quote. In December 2016, Sage's case was reclassified as a homicide investigation. It is believed that she is deceased. Shortly after that, in March of 2017, law enforcement announced that Eric is once again a person of interest. Then, in June of 2019, Eric was finally officially reported missing. And... He and Sage both still are missing. There's a $20,000 reward being offered for information that may lead to finding Sage's remains or any arrest in her case. And if you have any information, please call Crime Stoppers at 434 977 4000. And that's where we'll leave this episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram at com, And don't be a stranger with your case suggestions, request at gmail.com. And don't forget, rate us five stars. Until then, stay safe. Bye.
0: Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermo Spa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death